Now, as I begin today, I want to share a story of a teacher uh, one time doing what uh, many teachers do, where he was asking his students uh, what they wanted to be when they grew up, and as you might expect, he got a variety of answers. Uh, One little kid said, I want to be a doctor. Uh, One said, I want to be an engineer. One said, I want to be a policeman, a teacher, a football player, which I still distinctly remember in kindergarten, uh, I wanted to be a football player, Uh, but I obviously, my body, my build probably didn't fit best uh, in that regard. Uh, so all these things. But this teacher noticed that there was this one kid uh, that was named Sam who was very quiet. He wasn't saying anything. All these kids are yelling anything. He's kind of sitting in the corner not saying anything. And so uh, the teacher asked Sam, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, after uh, being quiet for a second, Sam finally replies by saying, possible. Uh, the teacher asked, possible? What does that even mean? Uh, yes, said Sam. My mom always tells me I'm impossible. So when I grow up, I want to be possible. <laughs> That's what he wanted to be. Now, I share that story because today we are going to read a story in Genesis about God literally doing the impossible. And we are going to consider for us what that actually might mean for us today, or what practically we might can learn from the story of God doing something quite impossible. And so uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18? Genesis chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. That is our gift to you. We've been in Genesis for much of this year. Uh, last, we were, in, uh, we were two weeks ago, we were in Genesis 17. If you were with us, we're in the story of Abraham, who God calls uh, and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all of the world through you, through your offspring, somehow, some way, eventually. Of course, we know that uh, that. Uh, Full blessing came to fruition through Jesus. And last week we saw the story where God told Abraham that his wife Sarah is going to have a son. Now, if you've been with us, he already has another son named Ishmael uh, through another woman that he married because him and Sarah are old and she's not been able to have a kid. And so they assume uh, that this is the way we're going to do it. Well, then he gets revisited again. He said, no, Sarah is going to have a son about a next time this year. And then we also talked about circumcision and the sign of the covenant and why that might be the sign of the covenant for the Israelites. So if you're with us last weekend, Abraham is well advanced in years. He assumes for 13 years that Ishmael, the son he has, is going to be the promised heir. God appears to him and says, no, it's not going to be him. It's going to be a son named Isaac, whom your wife, who has never had kids, is going to have. And so in this story, we're going to see uh, that uh, story pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. It says this, The Lord appeared to Abraham while at the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Verse 5, I will bring you a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourself. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they, they said, do as you have said. Verse 6, Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, his wife, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. And then Abraham took curds of milk, as well as the calf that he had prepared, set them before the men. He served them as they ate under 
the tree. So what's happening here is that three men are on a journey. They are on the journey. They pass where Abraham and all of his livestock family servants are staying. And what this is happening here is what is known in the Bible as, as a, well, not just the Bible, just as known in general, as called a theophany. So this is a manifestation of God in a tangible form. What we're going to see is this is God and two angels in the form of human beings who are passing by Abraham and his tents. Now, it is debated whether or not Abraham recognized right away, whether or not uh, Abraham knew knew this was God, or if he was just being really hospitable. Um, it was very ha- uh, customary in this time to be hospitable to travelers because this is how you survived when you traveled yourself. There's no hotels. There's no fast food restaurants. There's, uh, you need the hospitality of other people to survive. Uh, even saying, my Lord, he could be calling him Lord because he's God, or it could just be a reverent welcome to, to a welcomed guest to your house. So we're not exactly sure here. Regardless, what Abraham is doing is actually um, exceeding generous, exceedingly hospitality, hospital, we, hospitable. Uh, we know that because meat, for example, was not a part of their normal diet. They have to go out of their way to slaughter a calf. And so this is, be, this is above and beyond what you would typically do for guests that were traveling through. So Abraham is clearly being hospitable and generous to these men. It, what, we, we might not be able to understand it in, in, in our context, but in the ancient world, this is like a banquet. Like they're going to Ruth Chris Steakhouse, they're getting the wine, the appetizer, and the desserts, and Abraham's paying for all of it. Like, that's what's happening here. And then it says this in verse 9. So they're having this meal, verse 9. Oh, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. They are in the tent, he answered, Abraham answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, remember, last week, God told this to Abraham, and now he's saying it again. Uh, but then it says this, now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? What's actually it's, she's saying there is that uh, she has gone through menopause and Abraham is old. Like this is literally probably not possible on either person's account, but especially hers. Verse 13, but the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll come back to you. In about a year, you will have a son. In the verse 15, Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, Abraham replied to her, no, you did laugh. So again, I want to point out something that might be easy for miss. Uh, in chapter 17, Abraham is told that Sarah is going to have a son. We've always known that he's going to have a son. We've assumed, I think rightly, that it was going to be through Sarah, but she was never able to have a child, so they try to have a child through other means. But then in verse chapter 17, he's told explicitly, no, Sarah's going to have a son. We're not sure how long between chapter 17 and 18 happened, maybe a couple days, maybe a couple of weeks, probably wasn't that, too, wasn't that difficult. But at least uh, my understanding here, uh, we have reason to believe that Abraham may, may not have even told Sarah that this latest, latest revelation from God. And relationships are different in the ancient world. Uh, they might have been in different campsites, different places. And so uh, for all we know, this is the first time Sarah has actually heard that she herself is going to have a son. Now, what I want to do here, if you can stick with me for a minute, I want to be a little bit technical here, but I want to show you something in the text that's easy for us to miss that I think is very significant to understand what is going on here. So uh, verse 9 that we just read uh, takes place either during or after the meeting. 
meal. So when, they, when these traveling men ask Abraham where his uh, wife is, this is either during the meal or it is after they are done. So they've been eating and hanging out for a while. Abraham then answers, or they ask where he is. Uh, this, here, here's why this is significant. If these men are strangers. It would kind of seem rude and weird for a stranger to pry in this way, asking their host where their family is. But if they are divine, which of course the text is going to show us they are, it would also be interesting or maybe strange for God to ask where Sarah is. Because if God, if God, he knows everything, why would he need to ask something? Now again, we've said multiple times, Genesis is a great example of how scripture is meditation literature. You read, you reread, you begin to pick up uh, common themes and threads, and it calls back to other passages you have previously read. So I say that because twice already, just in Genesis, this happens all throughout the Old Testament, but twice so far in Genesis, we have situations where God asks where somebody is. In both times previous, it is not because he does not already know or because he is trying to gather information he does not already have. Rather, it is a question designed to invoke an admission from the person being asked. So he wants the person who is asking to admit what is going on here. So the first time is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Adam and Eve, after they take the fruit of the tree, uh, God appears and he asks where, where, where they are. They're hiding. He knows they're hiding, but he's asking where they are. I think because he's offering them a chance to repent and be honest about what they've done. We see this again in Genesis chapter 4 verse 9 with the story of Cain and Abel where Cain kills Abel and God asks Cain where Abel is and, and Cain kind of says, am I my brother's keeper? Again, I would submit uh, that God is giving Cain a chance to repent and just be honest about what he has done, but he doesn't answer either. And so if that is going on here, if God is asking Abraham where Sarah is, it's because he wants to constitute some sort of admission from Abraham. Now, the question is, what does he want Abraham to realize or to say here? Well, uh, some suggest that Sarah was in the tent because it was not customary in the ancient world uh, for women to eat with men. Now, that happens in certain times in certain places. Uh, I'm not persuaded that that is what's happening here, however. Um, uh, what is likely happening here, and I would say this as well, because when you read these biblical stories, you get very few information. Uh, very few contextual, here's what happened, whatever. So everything that's in there, every detail that's in there is in there for a reason. So there must be a very specific reason that this text is telling us God asked this question. Uh, rather, I think what's going on here, what I would submit, not me, a lot of smarter people smarter than I, and I was like, that sounds good, uh, would say what's happening here is that Sarah is actually in the tent because she has begun to menstruate. Now, it was, you might say, well, how would we know that? Well, it was common practice in the ancient world that if a woman was menstruating, she would not go out publicly. Uh, she would not, she would stay in the tent. She would stay at home. She wouldn't be around other people. She certainly would not be preparing food for other people. In fact, being in the tent was often an idiom to say that a woman was on her period. You actually see this later in Genesis with uh, Jacob's uh, uh, wife, um, Jacob's wife, where she pretends that she's on a period. We're going to get to the story because she's stealing her, her, her father's gods. And so she says, she says in the tent, so she can't come out. This was a common idiom to say this, a woman is menstruating. Now, again, this is what's interesting. This might be seemed to rule out this idea that she's actually gotten her period again, because in verse 11, she says that the, she is past the age of childbearing. Or some translations say a more literally way to translate it is that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. That's what's going on here. How can she be pregnant if she is no longer able to have a child? 
Um, though you can imagine if, if, if Sarah realizes something is happening to her body, she uh, undoubtedly might know what is actually happening, but it hasn't happened in who knows how long. And of course, it doesn't feel like it could be possible. So she's probably uh, confused, maybe reluctant to believe that this is actually happening for her. And so the timing of all of this, I know this is kind of technical, the timing for all of this is a big deal. Okay, In verse 6, Abra asks Sarah to ask him make bread. There is no way she would be menstruating or on her period if she was making bread for guests. That would not have been a request. So certainly when the guests arrive, this is not happening. Uh, but then she is not there eating. She's in the tent, which suggests there is a reason for her now to be in the tent, which means that Abraham, while Abraham is being told by these men that he is going to have a son, Sarah has begun to have her period again. That's likely what is actually going on here. Again, to be clear, the text does not specifically say this is what is going on, but it does make more sense of all that is happening here. Sarah helps and makes the meal. Abraham is then asked where she is. She says that she is in the tent away from the guests. A lot of this is why Abraham is being told, why she's hearing that she's going to have a child. Her body is actually showing her this is actually a reality, a possibility for you. And like Abraham in chapter 17, when he first hears that Sarah's going to have a child, he laughs out of disbelief. She laughs here as well. Again, Isaac, the name of their son, means he laughs. And so it makes sense that laughter, laughter is highlighted in both her, husband, or her father and her mother. Uh, she then denies that she was laughing to Abraham because it likely would have been seen as very disrespectful uh, to do that. Um, and so she doesn't want them to be offended. And so she denies it. Just like Abraham, however, they both laugh when they hear that she's going to have a child. Now, that's a lot of information. Uh, I say all that to say this. That said, we are left with a profound question in verse 14 where it says, or where God says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Or some translations, is anything too hard for the Lord. This is God's response to their response, their disbelief that this could actually happen. Now, this word impossible is from the Hebrew word yippale, which means wonderful, marvelous, hard, um, extraordinary. Really, it gives the connotation is that is there anything, a harvelous, marred, mysterious, is there anything that the Lord cannot do? That's what this text is inviting us to question. And, and so I think, I don't know about you, but when I hear the question, is there anything the Lord cannot do? Uh, I think it's both encouraging and discouraging. Encouraging and discouraging. Uh, here's what I think is encouraging about this statement. The first thing is this, nothing is impossible for our God. That's what this text is showing us. That's what the story of Abraham and Sarah getting pregnant is showing us, that literally nothing is impossible for God that God is telling and he is showing Abraham that he is above, that he is greater than all these things, that what is impossible literally from our perspective is not impossible for him. There is nothing he can't do. And so even for us, maybe as we enter into this week of prayer and fasting, we, when we pray, it's helpful for us to remember that we do not pray to a God who we hope can maybe figure out a way if he's in a good enough mood and have enough power to do what we are asking. That's not who we go before, that we pray to a God who can. 
That is the God that we fast for. That is the God that we seek. That is the God that we praise to. That he literally can do anything that we ask or imagine. In fact, Jesus picks up on the same idea uh, in, in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus saturated in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament scriptures, and his familiarity, or rather, our familiarity with the Old Testament helps us better understand what Jesus says and what he does. Jesus' teachings and sayings, his actions are not random. They are uh, influenced by the scriptures showing us that he is the, uh, the, all scripture is a unified story that leads to him. Jesus says the same thing. There's a story told in the gospel of Mark uh, chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19 is the same story uh, shared in both gospels where Jesus is confronted by a rich young ruler who has a lot of money, but he's also morally a really great guy. He's got a lot of money, but he's also a really great person. And he comes to Jesus and he says, basically, what must I do to inherit in her eternal life? How can I become saved if we're going to put modern language on it? And Jesus tells him, here's how you should live. And he's like, I'm doing all these things. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, give what you have to the poor and come and follow me. He's inviting this guy to give up all of his possessions and essentially join his group of disciples. And this guy becomes overcome with grief because he decides not to do it. He has too much to lose. And so even though he's a really good person, uh, he has too much money to lose. So he decides not to do that. So he leaves, dejected. And then the disciples uh, see all this. They're pretty surprised. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it is easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that a camel in the ancient world was the biggest animal that, you, that people would be familiar with that the average person would see. And the eye of a needle is tiny. Obviously, a camel cannot fit through the eye of a needle because it is massive. What he's saying is that literally it is impossible for rich people to get into heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. And his disciples are surprised. So they say this, Mark 10 on the screen. They were even more astonished saying to one another, then who can be saved? Right? If a rich person cannot be saved in the ancient world, even today if we're honest, but particularly in the ancient world, it was believed that if you were blessed materially and financially, that you had the favor of God on your life. And if you had the favor of God on your life and you as a rich person cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, then what chances are for anybody else? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. What he's saying is, you're right. Nobody can be saved. It is impossible on your own effort to make it happen, but not for God, that you can't. You cannot save yourself. Sarah can not have kids, but with God, nothing is too hard for him. And for us, this is the good news of what Jesus has done, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, his defeating of sin and darkness of evil, his salvation, rather, your salvation is impossible, but made possible by Jesus. Not by you trying really hard, doing a lot of good things, uh, changing who you're hanging out with, or, or being a better person. It is by Jesus alone and his sacrifice that you and I can receive the salvation of God. And so if you want to be saved, you have to ask him. I'm reminded of my kids, you know, they're eight and five, and so oftentimes they need help. They can't open something. They can't figure something out. They can't reach something. And so they can try as hard as they can, but they cannot do the thing that they cannot do. And so what do they do? They ask for me to help them, to help them open the jar, to help them find something, to help them go do something that they're not strong enough physically to do for themselves. It does not matter how hard they try. They cannot do it unless I help them. And that's what's happening here. What we see in this story is that nothing is impossible for God. And I think that's an encouragement to us that if we ask, he can do it. Yet at the same time, it's also discouraging. 
right? Because if he can, but what if he doesn't? Or put another way, here's what I think is discouraging. Oh, we have no idea what impossible thing God might do. We have no idea. Just because he can and has the power does not mean he will. Or sometimes he will, but he will not do it how we expect or how we ask. And so when we face difficult circumstances, we cannot claim these verses in Genesis 18 as confidence that God will change our circumstances. Yes, he could, but it's not that he will. And it's also not an evidence of a lack of faith. So maybe you might think, well, if I don't have enough faith, or maybe God hasn't done this because I don't have enough faith. If I have enough faith, then he will. What's interesting about this story is that Adam and Sarah, or Abraham and Sarah, do not have any faith this can happen, right? It is not at all about their faith that's going to make this happen. It's just about God's grace. Adam and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah do not have faith here, right? That God can change any circumstance as he does in the Genesis 18 story, but he doesn't mean he will. Or perhaps, perhaps the hard thing that he will do is help us accept our current circumstances and grow with him through them. Maybe that is the impossible thing. Not changing what's happening, but changing us. I think, for example, a great story of this, depending on how old you are, you might be more familiar with this person uh, than others. But in 1967, there was a teenager by the name of Joni Erickson. Her name now is Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, She dove into a pool one day, misjudging the shallowness of the water. She fractured her fourth and fifth vertebrae. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know where your fourth and fifth vertebrae are. It's somewhere on your back. Uh, She shattered them. And she became a, a quadriplegic. So paralyzed from the shoulders down for the rest of her life. She's a teenager. She was from a believing family. She was a Christian. And so during her first two years of rehab, she experienced what I think any other normal person would experience. She said she was angry. She was depressed. She was even suicidal. She doubted her faith. Uh, And of course, who wouldn't? You have your whole life in front of you. You're a good person. You love the Lord, and this happens to you. You weren't even, like, doing anything wrong. It's not like you were in a drunk driving accident, or you were, like, you, you were doing what you thought was, like, an innocent thing. And so in her, later on in her biography, she writes that during the same time, she was encouraged by friends to have faith that God could miraculously heal her. Like, she just needs to have faith that God could heal her. In fact, she was quoted Genesis 18 as an example. If you have faith, even though it wasn't about Abraham and Sarah's faith, but God can do the impossible. And of course he can. So I'm not saying like we should never say these things to people, but it made it hard for her because she was told, pray for the impossible. God can do it. He did it in Genesis 18. He can do it for you. And so she began to struggle between the difference between faith that God could heal her and faith that God would heal her. And would it take just as much faith to believe God would heal her spirit without healing her, bar, her body, and use her regardless of the new limitations she has found on herself. Now, if you are familiar with the story of Joni Erickson, she eventually learned how to uh, brush with her teeth, like paintbrush with her teeth. Uh, she started selling up her artwork. If you look up her artwork online, I mean, it is amazing. It is, it is professional level. You would have, if someone told you she, she painted this with her mouth, you would not believe them. Uh, she began writing books through voice recognition software. She has to date authored over 40 books. She's been a, a bestseller. She's traveled the world and spoke about to both Christian audiences and as an advocate for people with disabilities. Now, I'm not saying all of us are going to have these amazing world-changing stories from our disappointments, but I am saying this, that we must be cautious that as we accept that nothing is too hard for God, 
we, did, we do not then dictate to him the hard thing that he must do. He tends to have things in mind that go far beyond what we were able to ask or even think. And so if we're going to put this, apply this to your life where you are today, what does this mean for you? Well, it may very well mean you, could, you should continue to pray for the thing you long for. It may be well mean you, you should pray for that. Uh, it also could mean that you begin to ask and seek uh, and pursue what a God-honoring life looks like, it's even if you do not get what you want. Again, I don't know the answer of that to you, but what I do know is that we do not know what God might do. And so we can look at Genesis 18 with encouragement that we pray to the God who can, but also be honest that even if he doesn't, that he, we should still trust him and that he is still in control. This is where Abraham and Sarah find themselves. And so if we continue reading verse 16, it then says this. The men got up from there and looked over at Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, and he's talking to the two angels here. <clears throat> Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is about to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. <clears throat> if not, I will find out. Now, this is curious what's going on here. A God begins to talk about Abraham to the angels, even though Abraham is standing right there. Like, it's kind of like a weird thing, like, what, what's happening here? Um, I think what's happening here is that God is talking to these angels about wickedness and justice, and that they are going to condemn the wickedness of Sodom. It was already talked about in chapter 13 that it was a wicked, evil city. Next week, we're going to see an example of their evil and wickedness on full display. And so they talk about this in front of Abraham. Now, again, obviously, God already knows what's going on in Sodom. Clearly, then, this is an invitation for Abraham to participate and consider the issues of justice, that he wants to see what Abraham thinks about what God is going to do. And so here's what happens, verse 22. And I'm just going to read this straight through to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained behind, standing before the Lord. So the angels go on ahead. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? Verse 25, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't judge of the, old, the whole earth do what is just? He's saying, this is not fair to the righteous people. Like, are you really going to destroy them for the sins of the wicked people? And so verse 26, the Lord said, if I find 50 people, 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole city for their sake. So, okay, if there's 50 people, I won't destroy it. Verse 27, then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose that 50, 50, uh, 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? God replied, I will not destroy the city if I find 45 there. Then he spoke again. This is Abraham. Suppose 40 are found there. God answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose there are uh, 30 found there. I will not do it if I find 30 there. Verse 31, it continues. Then Abraham says again, since I had ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. 
God replies again, I will not destroy it on the count of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, God answers, I will not destroy it on the account of 10. When Abraham finished speaking, with, or when the Lord finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world's happening here, right? Um, and should we be encouraged or discouraged by this, right? The fact that Abraham can be, uh, as a mere human, that he can persuade God, is that like a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, here's what we know. So Sodom, again, Lot, Abraham's nephew, who Abraham has already rescued once, he lives in the area of Sodom, so he's certainly afraid for Lot's life, but there seems to be more going on here, that Abraham seems to be genuinely concerned about treating righteous and good people the same as evil and wicked people. And he's saying, how is that fair? And I think all of us would say, that's a great question. How is that fair? And so perhaps, perhaps Abraham is actually surprised that the Lord concedes and says, no, if there's 50 people, I won't do it. And so he keeps asking and asking, and he gets him all the way down to 10. Now, a lot has been written by this exchange about what's going on here, but I want to briefly focus on one main idea that might be countercultural to how you think you and I are supposed to operate before God, and that is what this text, I would say, is clearly demonstrating. And that is, that is God invites us to wrestle with him. God invites us to wrestle with him. And you can put that on the screen. That's what's happening here. That God in his mercy, I think fascinatingly, depending on how you grew up and what you think about God, he, he grants everything that Abraham asks all the way down to 10. At which point I think, particularly as modern readers, after the coming of Jesus, we should be asking, why did he stop? Like, why did he keep going? Especially in light of all that we have read, even so far in Genesis, that I think this story is meant to show us that God invites us to wrestle and ask him. I think we see this with Adam and Eve, and God gives them the opportunity to repent. I think we see this with Cain and Abel. He gives Cain the opportunity to repent. I have no idea what it might have happened to Adam and Eve, to Cain and Abel, to many of these people. If they had just repented and been honest, I think things would have gone very differently. I think they would have gone very differently. But they didn't. He invites us into a relationship with him, that he invites us, that God wants us to ask. And as we've already said, that doesn't mean we always get what we want, but I would say this, I do think there are times that we must consider if we do not have because we have not asked. Sometimes I am 100% convinced we do not have because we have not asked. And hear me, asking does not count. I prayed for it one time when I went to bed. I haven't prayed for it in a month. That is not asking God. Many times in my conversations as a pastor, I've seen people say, I want this desire. Why is God not doing it? Well, have you prayed about it? Have you fasted about it? And the answer is no. And so we should not expect God to do whatever we want if we're not actually seeking him. I just want to encourage you this week of fasting and prayer. Not saying you're going to get what you want, but perhaps maybe that good God-honoring thing you do not have, you haven't actually wrestled with him with. Right? If we just prayed one quick prayer, one quick, one time, and then we get mad that God hasn't done what we want, and even though we've spent hardly any time pleading before him, he's inviting us to wrestle with him. And I think, by the way, I think we are meant to wonder, what if Abraham had asked for just five righteous people? What would happen in Sodom? What would have happened if Abraham had asked just for one? What if one person, I think we're supposed to ask, could stand in the place in the gap for the unrighteous. What if there can be one? 
And so I think what also we see here is that a righteous minority can change the trajectory of a wicked majority. That's what God is conceding here to Abraham, that the role of Abraham's descendants, which will be the Israelites, are, are to be a light to the whole world. That's what's happening here. A light into a wicked world. And so, of course, the Israelites also become wicked and sinful, and then they get judged as well, leading us again to realize that no one is good enough on their own, no one is holy enough on their own, no one is righteous enough on their own, on their own that we need someone, even just one person to stand in for us. And who might that be? You're right. You're at church. You know, if you don't know the answer, it's Jesus. Here's what we see happening here. That Jesus is the righteous one that redeems us. If I could lead us, I think this story, again, the scriptures are a unified story leading to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, we can look at this story with fresh eyes and showing us, what if there's only one? If God will do it for just 10, surely he would do it for five. Surely he would do it for one. That Jesus is the righteous one that stands on our behalf. That our salvation is made possible because God has done the impossible for us. He has done the impossible that we could not do on our own. Jesus is that one. And so if you're here today, you're watching online, and you're like, man, I blew it this week. I screwed up. I've got doubts. I've got questions. And you're like, does God still love me? Does this mean I'm not saved? It's not about you. It's about what Christ has done for you. And as you and I trust and follow him in the midst of our doubts and our questions and our discouragements, he redeems us, not ourselves. Jesus is the righteous one that redeems us. Jesus is the righteous one that stands in our place. This is why we gather. This is why we worship. This is why we pray to a God who can. And listen, even if he does not answer your prayers in the way you want in this life, in the next life, it will all make sense. Where there is no more pain, suffering, death, crying, or tears. That you and I are invited into the kingdom of God. Not because of us, but because of him. Because of the righteous one who came and stood in the gap for wicked people on our behalf. Jesus, not our efforts, not our generosity, not our being a good person. Jesus is the righteous one that redeems us, which means anybody can experience the grace and mercy of God. Anybody.